Hey everybody, welcome to Where the Fuck Are We? I'm Kevin Janis. I'm Benari Poulton, and it's been a busy few weeks for us here at Where the Fuck Are We? Yeah, a lot of cool stuff is going on. Uh, you can now hear uh, clips of us on the Friday Drive at 5 on 980 WCAP. Where everybody gets it. And you can also hear us on Progressive Voices Radio on TuneIn. That's right, and we're, we're on Stitcher now, and maybe maybe you heard us on Stitcher or in any of those places, and maybe that's why you're listening to us now, so welcome to Where the Fuck Are We? And what the fuck is Where the Fuck Are We? It's the foreign affairs show that asks the three most important questions for Americans. Where the fuck are we? Why the fuck are we there? And what the fuck does it have to do with me? And you may also be asking, who the fuck are we? Barry, tell them who we are! But... Nari Poulton is a writer and comedian, an adjunct professor at Cal State Fullerton, and a master sergeant in the U.S. Army Reserve, where he is affectionately known as G.I. Jew. Kevin Janis, in addition to being a very funny comedian and writer himself, is a fancy New York-based litigator, a Canadian, and like all Canadians, an expert at being foreign. Thanks, Barry. As always, the opinions I express here are my own opinions, and they in no way reflect those of the U.S. Army, the U.S. government, coalition forces, our partners, our allies, anyone official. Anybody! So nobody. My opinions represent no one. Okay, (laughs) so, last time we were getting lucky in Sochi. We'd up all night to get lucky. We'd up all night to get lucky. I just cannot get enough of Russia's police choir singing Daft Punk's Get Lucky. But uh, last time we were in Sochi, where the fuck are we this week? Back in the U.S., back in the U.S., back in the U.S. as all. Yes, we are literally going back to the USSR with the crisis <laughs> in Ukraine. Yeah, it does look like Putin's trying to put the old band back together. Which is why this week we're in Crimea. <laughs> JT's Crimea River actually would make a perfect new national anthem the way things are going in Crimea right now. (laughs) Well, things are escalating really, really quickly there. Crimean lawmakers are voting on secession, and then, of course, this just happened. Overnight, the Russian Navy sank one of its own decommissioned warships across the mouth of Donoslav Inlet. Now, says Ukrainian Captain Oleg Sokolov, our warships can't get out to help defend the country. They're sitting trapped at their dock further up the channel, effectively dead in the water. So Russia has just blocked Ukraine entry to the Black Sea. But, you know, there's no war looming. It's all perfectly normal. Nothing to see here. Totally fine. All under control. Ukraine, you get fucked. Of course, tension between Russia and Ukraine is nothing new, uh, especially when it comes to Crimea. So to put things into the proper context of history, we're going to do it in under three minutes in sports highlight reel style. This ain't history. This is the Blitzery. Crimea, known in ancient times as Taurus, home to the Tauric tribes who are pushed back, 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 from the coast by the Greeks in the 6th century BC. But heading into the 1st century AD, 
It's the Romans who run the show in Crimea. Welcome to the Byzantine Empire. Hope you survive the experience. Most of Crimea stays in the Byzantine Empire under Constantinople's rule. The peninsula's strategic location in the Black Sea makes it a perfect stronghold and trading port. But here come the Mongols in the 13th century, and the area once known as Taurus is overrun by Chinggis Khan. The Golden Horde sweeps through the land, putting the nomadic Tatars in charge under Khan rule. But by the 15th century, it's out with the old, in with the new. The Khans are out and the Ottomans are in. The Tatars still call the shots under the Ottoman Empire, remaining a thorn in Russia's side. Until Catherine the Great seizes Crimea from the Ottoman Empire in 1783, along with Georgia giving Russia access to the Black Sea from two sides. The Ottomans fight back, but are beaten time and time again by the Russians as Catherine floods Crimea with immigrants who soon outnumber the Tatars. 1853. France and Britain move to block Russia from gaining control over access to the Black Sea. The Crimean War is underway. Oh, and it's a tough loss for Russia. World War I brings German occupation and fierce fighting in the region leaving Crimea an autonomous part of the Soviet Republic. But the Tatars suffer under Stalin's purges in the 30s, and the region is again traumatized by Nazi occupation in World War II. One last flash of greatness, as Stalin, Churchill, and FDR meet in Yalta, in a meeting that would lead to the end of World War II, and the start of the United Nations. And it's also the start of the Cold War, as Crimea is absorbed into the USSR and they just can't catch a break. 1956. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev denounces Stalin's mass deportation of the Tatars and returns Crimea to Ukraine. Crimea remains a popular vacation spot for Russians during the next few decades of the Soviet era. And in 1991, after the Soviet Union falls, Crimea becomes an autonomous republic within the newly independent Ukraine. Which they remain today. Sort of. Who knows what the future will hold for the little peninsula that could. But you'll hear all about it here first. On The Blitzery. You know what I love about The Blitzery? No matter what country we're doing, the Mongols are always coming. There's always a point. <laughs> and it's when... always it's always one of the cons, right? We have Russia and Crimea. This is a bit like Sam and Diane on Cheers, right? Will they or won't they? Always fighting and fucking. Which I guess makes Ukraine like Frazier. Why? Well, I, I mean, in that analogy, no one ends up with Crimea. But the Ukraine would get its own spinoff, so it doesn't really work at all. But <laughs> okay. Well, maybe maybe Russia maybe it's Russia's money pit. Okay, so you agree with me at least that there's a Shelley Long connection here. <laughs> yeah, oh, completely. I mean, All right. at the very least, it's complicated. We mentioned in the blistery that Khrushchev actually gave up Soviet control of uh, Crimea back in the 50s. Yeah, he gifted uh, Crimea to Ukraine. And that was very nice of him. Uh, it might have had something to do with the fact that he was born right near the Russian-Ukrainian border to Russian and Ukrainian parents. Maybe Khrushchev was feeling a little guilty since Stalin appointed him head of the Communist Party in the Ukraine in 1938 at the height of the purges. That might do it, too. But, uh, Kevin, you are actually 25% Ukrainian. Yes, and I am 25% outraged by what's happening. But you are 100% Canadian, 
So I I don't know what the conversion rate on the outrage meter is there. I don't know if you have to convert it to the metric system or... At 31 degrees Celsius outraged. Canada actually is home to the second largest uh, Ukrainian population in the world outside the Ukraine itself. It makes up 10% of the country's population. I grew up on my grandma's Ukrainian uh, cooking. And one of my closest friends is a Yuki. I emceed his Ukrainian wedding. I had to stand for... 18 hours in the Ukrainian Orthodox Mass. My next door neighbor at, at work is a uh, is is a fellow Yuki. So okay, so so you are well versed in in that culture. Then uh, what what do we as Americans need to know about Ukrainians? Well, one thing I would say about the diaspora uh, is that they are pretty aggressive nationalists in terms of getting their children to go to hardcore Ukrainian uh, boot camp programs after school, uh, learn the Ukrainian language, culture. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I was just watching this morning. You remember the boxer Vitaly Klitschko, right? Yeah, sure. He was a pro boxer. He's now a Ukrainian opposition leader. He was just in Dublin speaking about fighting for the Ukraine. I know better than anyone. No fight, no win. And that's why we have to fight for our dream. The fight is not easy. It's a very big challenge. What I love about Klitschko is there. It, it, the Ukrainian parliament was always brawling. They were always, over the past few years, you know, you have those epic bench-clearing brawls in the Ukrainian parliament. And Klitschko, you always see him, like, standing three feet taller than everyone else. And he's, in no, he's never throwing a punch. He's always no, he's the guy. Br- he's the guy breaking up the brawls. Because he, if, if he ever hit anyone, he'd kill them. Yeah. You know, it's a little different in Crimea where ethnic Russians make up about 60% of the population because if you, you could see it on a map, if you look at the map of ethnic populations, you see that the west is uh, very Ukrainian and then the the east is actually quite Russian. Yeah, and it seems they might actually want to rejoin Russia. Crimea's parliament has voted in favor of joining Russia and said it had asked Russian President Putin to start the procedure of allowing Crimea to be reunited with its motherland. MPs also voted to hold a referendum in 10 days' time on the status of Crimea. Yeah, and uh, as CBS reports in this clip, uh, Russia is all too happy to help. And the fact is that Crimea is already being run as if it had joined the Russian Federation. Russian flags fly atop public buildings. Russia and pro-Russian groups are making the rules here now, and they've got plenty of muscle to back them up. Is this just... Crimea hedging their bets after Ukrainian President Yanukovych was kicked out of Kiev? Uh, that's kind of what Putin's saying, right? Um, I mean, he, he, but this is classic Putin. He, he says he's just responding to a cry for help from uh, ethnic Russians, right? He's protecting the ethnic Russian majority in Crimea. It's the same argument he made in Georgia. It's the same argument he made in Moldova. Well, sure. I mean, it's an argument that works for him, but it's a tricky argument, right? I mean, if he can just go around protecting ethnic Russian majorities anywhere, Putin could pull the Russian fleet up to Brighton Beach tomorrow and take over Coney Island. (laughs) Well, and there's also the matter of the Budapest Memorandum, which Russia signed. Right, and the U.S. basically accused Russia of violating this international treaty. Well, among other things, yeah. Yeah, among a lot of other complex details. And, Kevin, you know how I am with details. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. It's time for Getting Fact. 
The Ukraine once boasted the world's third largest stockpile of nuclear weapons, so big and powerful. But in 1994, they signed the Budapest Memorandum, banging out security assurances with five world powers, including the US, the UK, and Russia. And between 1994 and 1996, Ukraine gave it all up. They gave it up good. It was hard. But in return, Russia agreed to some tough conditions, including respecting Ukrainian independence and sovereignty within its borders, refraining from the threat or use of force against Ukraine, and consulting with the other world powers if there were any issues. Oh, don't you love getting fact? I do. I do like getting fact. All right, I got to admit, I kind of like getting fact, too. (laughs) We all like getting fact. So while Putin may have an argument that he's just answering a call for help, the Budapest Memorandum clearly prevents Russia from using force against Ukraine. And at the very least, he's supposed to consult with the other nuclear powers, so he should have called us first. Yeah, well, history nerds are exploding out of their tweed jackets, jumping at the chance to talk about the Crimean War. I mean, 1853 to 1856, these guys are all over it. So here's what I knew about the Crimean War. There was a Crimean War. And that's, <laughs> that's everything I knew about the Crimean War. Right. Uh, but, but now that we're learning about it, there's actually some really cool stuff here. For starters, let, let's just say this. All this talk about parallels between the current crisis and the, and the Crimean War. I mean, some, some people are talking about it. There aren't any. Uh, Other than it being the Russians pitted against other countries in the same geographic location with the same name, that's about as similar as it gets. Basically, the Crimean War, here's what you need to know. The Russians were at war with the British Empire, France, and the Ottoman Empire, and Russia lost. That's the upshot. Russia lost badly. Britain had won a stunning victory. The power of the Russian state was destroyed for at least a generation. The British set up a global empire. At least until 1918, Britain remained unrivaled as a unique global power. The victory of the Crimea truly put France back in the first league of European nations. The Ottoman Empire, in whose defense the whole war had started, had also lost 100,000 men, probably more. But they had died to save nothing. The other big loser was the Tsar. Russia had lost half a million men and much of its power and influence. So there it is, the, the, crime, the Crimean War in a nutshell. Uh, the, the, the Brits did okay, the French did okay and squandered it, the Ottomans died for nothing, and Russia lost half a million men and much of its power and influence. And even when the British Empire lost a battle, they came out ahead. The famous Battle of Balaclava in 1854 ended with the legendary, if misguided, British charge of the Light Brigade. And that was immortalized. If you've ever taken an English course, you know the uh, the Tennyson poem of the same name. Well, okay, so wait a minute. You, you talk about the charge of the Light Brigade, and you don't mention its most famous cultural impact on Western civilization? Uh, well, I mean, Kipling wrote the last of the Light Brigade 40 years later, and yeah. you know, Florence Nightingale became a huge international hero. Uh-huh. And, uh and, of course, the, the uh, Crimean War gave us all the uh, balaclava ski masks, so that was pretty cool. Yes, and on June 20, 1983, this song was released. You'll take my life, but I'll take 
Iron Maiden's The Trooper, one of the greatest metal songs of all time. And it's about the charge of the Light Brigade. It's Iron Maiden on the Crimean War. I know none of you can see this, so just for your your visual pleasure, Kevin is in a frenzy of air drumming and guitar right now, and probably will be for the rest of the podcast. Look, as far as I'm concerned, this is all anyone needs to know about the Crimean War. Done. Over. Anyone talks to you about Crimea people? Made it! Okay, so basically the Crimean War is the 19th century equivalent of the Cold War. Except it only lasts for, like, three years, and it has Britain on one side and Russia on the other, and Russia lost the war so badly, it posed no threat to Britain for close to 30 years. That's exactly right. So that's an interesting parallel right there uh, that people are not making. Right, but I don't think that's a a parallel that Russia really wants to make, uh, you know, especially because they're beating you know, the drums of war right now, and you have people who are going on and on about Putin masterminding this brilliant incursion into Crimea. But how about this simple parallel? Bad things usually happen to Russian leaders in Crimea. Mikhail Gorbachev was held hostage at his dacha in the Ukrainian Crimea in Foros during the failed coup attempt by hardliners in August 1991. That is a fun fact. Gorby nearly lost total power just by taking a trip to the Crimea. He went to his summer house. And he was out of power four months later. So you hear that, Putin? The last president of your beloved Soviet Union was imprisoned in his own summer home in the Ukrainian Crimea. One of the big consequences of Russia's defeat in the Crimean War was that the shock forced Russia to adopt sweeping reforms and industrialization under the new Tsar Alexander II. And that's something I'm sure Putin would absolutely love, sweeping reforms. Maybe we can start with same-sex marriage. I hear he's a big fan of the gays. But it's difficult to pick apart what's happening there because we're getting a lot of conflicting stories about what's actually going on on the ground. That's why when I want to know what's really happening in foreign affairs, I turn to the most trusted name in Kremlin-sponsored news, Russia Today. That's RT to you and me. Uh, Yeah. RT's coverage of the Crimea situation has been, uh, it's been interesting. Uh, Interesting? Yeah, well, look, some people might not watch RT. Uh, So for those of you who don't know, RT is a Russian-based TV network funded by the Russian government, and it has an English-language news channel available in the U.S. with American journalists. Uh, They're based in New York. I've, I've been to their, I've been to their building. I've been in their office. By the way, it doesn't air in Russia. Oh, no. No, of course not. But (laughs) that's because RT is what Russia wants the U.S. to think is happening in Russia. So, of course, when they started covering Crimea, you basically saw what you would expect to see. The usual Russian party line, Russia's just protecting Russians, the Ukrainian government is illegitimate, somehow Chechen terrorists are involved. I don't know where that came from. Then it got really crazy. Suddenly, in the middle of the news afternoon, RT has a DJ come on with his turntable, his laptop, his mixing board. Oh, and he's wearing a Freemason jacket. And he spins this little ditty. We've killed nearly 3,000 people on 9-11. 
We killed the airplane when it was over American soil. We killed Martin Luther King Jr. So that's that's disturbing. That was a song called We Killed Kids on a Basketball Court. Okay, so at this point you're thinking things at RT are probably going a little bit off the rails, but, you know, that, that's got to be rock bottom, right? No. <laughs> then this happens. This is RT news anchor Abby Martin on air. Before we wrap up the show, I wanted to say something from my heart about the ongoing political crisis in Ukraine and Russia's military occupation of Crimea. I can't stress enough how strongly I am against any state intervention in a sovereign nation's affairs. What Russia did is wrong. What I do know is that military intervention is never the answer, and I will not sit here and apologize or defend military aggression. What is happening over there at There you have it. I, it's nuts. And of course, liberal journalists are flocking to her. They finally, they have a brave, truth-telling hero who's willing to stand up to the Putin-funded propaganda machine. Except there is one small problem with that. This woman, we need to be clear, is an out-and-out lunatic. She's a conspiracy theorist. She's a 9-11 truther. She thinks that water fluoridation is a government conspiracy, which the last time you heard that was probably from the John Birch Society. Uh, She's compared Israel to Nazi Germany. So to to, to portray her as some sort of brave, truth-telling hero um, is really inaccurate. Right. So... Abby Martin is a confirmed, hardcore, kind of scary conspiracy theorist. Oh, and by the way, guess who invited the Obama killed the kids DJ onto the program? Abby Martin. Yeah, of course. So she's got bad taste in music and conspiracies. She is still cashing RT's checks. I mean, if you're really going to protest, forget speaking out on air. You got to quit on air. Let's face it, no one is ever going to do that at a Putin funded entity you'd have to be crazy except rt anchor liz wall personally i cannot be part of network funded by the russian government that whitewashes the actions of putin i'm proud to be an american and believe in disseminating the truth and that is why after this newscast i'm resigning that now see that is actually amazing and heroic i mean that that actually takes guts so until we find out that she's some kind of additional crazy nutcase conspiracy theorist i think it's safe to say that that what she did was actually uh, pretty ballsy oh this just begs the question what is going on over at rt i mean as crazy as it, as it was it was a good old dependably offensive putin sock puppet yeah it's like they've lost total control over their propaganda machine right i spoke with actor producer screenwriter and martial arts expert steven seagal holy shit steven seagal of course it makes perfect sense he He's taking Russia down from the inside. What other explanation could there possibly be? Because what could Steven Seagal possibly have to say to RT about the Crimean crisis? All this kind of stuff is not constructive to real diplomatic relations. And that's what we need here. We need calm. We need people who uh, can kind of try to look at the big picture and what's best for Ukraine, what's best for Russia, and not necessarily what's best for quote-unquote Europe. (laughs) Steven Seagal, no snorting like a guy coming off a coke bender. The craziest thing is that this isn't even the first time that Steven Seagal has been interviewed about international diplomacy. (laughs) 
one of his rambling points actually had a point. I mean, it, it kind of made sense. At least it made more sense than some people in Congress are making right now. I think this is a very dangerous stance to take, and it's a very dangerous game to play. Nobody should be criticizing Obama for not taking military action. Are they crazy? I mean, at this point, you know, we, what we really want are cool heads and, and diplomatic dialogue. We should be at the height of diplomatic diplomacy right now where we are, you know, talking to Russia and talking to Ukraine and trying to see if we can come up with a solution that's good for everybody. That's what we should really be trying to do. That was actor Steven Seagal. Just, just in case you were unclear, that is actor <laughs> Steven Seagal discussing the Ukraine. Here we have martial arts action star Steven Seagal, really one of the last action heroes of the Cold War era of movies. And he's calling for diplomacy and calm, rational talks. Meanwhile, we have actual U.S. senators who are making Cold War action movie-style speeches like John McCain. The President of the United States believes that the Cold War is over. That's fine. It is over. But Putin doesn't believe it's over. Look at Moldova. Look at the occupation of Georgia. Look at the pressure on the Baltic nations. Look at what they're doing in assisting Bashar Assad slaughter tens of thousands of innocent people in cities and towns and countryside all over Syria. It is an outrage. Yeah! Putin doesn't think the Cold War is over at all! It's not over! It's never over! You know who that sounds like, right? It's over, Johnny. It's over! Nothing is over! Nothing! You just don't turn it off! John McCain, you hear that? John McCain has managed to turn Putin into Rambo. Yeah, well, now the transformation is complete. Oh, there's so much weird stuff. It's it's just, to take how much credit some people have been giving Putin, right? You know, we've heard all, all this rhetoric about Russia's aggressive moves and what's the U.S. going to do if Putin takes hold of the region that's home to his Black Sea fleet. Like, it's over. Putin gets his hands on his, uh, you know, warm water naval base in Sevastopol, and it's all over. But right. let's get real. Russia's Black Sea fleet, it's, it's not that strong at all. And look, we're not saying that, you know, Putin's not dangerous and, 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 you know, potentially out of control here. But according to Stars and Stripes in the Washington Post, Russia's Black Sea Fleet is mostly made up of outdated ships and subs. I was reading the, the Washington Post and they said that the Italian Navy alone could easily destroy it. So it's not exactly the scourge of the seven seas here. <laughs> But we're hearing all this tough talk about how powerful Putin is. So much uh, uh, the media attention is focused on uh, on building Putin up and how powerful. But let's take this uh, from another vantage point, which is, you know, does Putin really want to force this issue? I mean, he might score some uh, short term political points, but the Russian economy is in big trouble. And and he just spent fifty one billion dollars on the Olympics. <laughs> Yeah. And this may work as a distraction, um, but l let's just take a possibility here. The U.S. could turn around and, and the West could really cripple Russia with economic sanctions. If you could get the European countries to actually uh, uh, implement them. I mean, then then you've got uh, the G8, which he's hosting in Sochi this year. Can you imagine if if he got kicked out or uh, they just didn't show up? I mean, that's a big embarrassment. Another way to look at this, okay, is that this could be very costly 
uh, in the long run for Russia. Uh, it really could. And that's basically what Secretary of State John Kerry said. Uh, here's a clip. Russia may be able to invade Crimea, uh, but in the end, Russia will isolate itself. There will be cost to the economy of Russia, cost to Russian businesses, cost to Russian individuals. I love that Kerry clip that you found of him talking to Andrea Mitchell. Oh, when John Kerry, oh, it's never good when he starts dropping pop culture references. We're hoping that Russia will not see this as a, a sort of a continuation of the Cold War. We don't see it that way. We do not believe this should be an East-West, Russia-United States. This is not Rocky IV. Yeah, except Rocky IV ended the Cold War. You know, remember the speech that Rocky gives? If I can change, then you could change. During this fight, I've seen a lot of changing. The way you felt about me and the way I felt about you. In here, there were two guys killing each other. But I guess that's better than 20 million. But what I'm trying to say is that if I can change, and you can change, everybody can change. That speech is the one-two punch that brought the wall down. At the end of the day, maybe it should be like Rocky IV. I want to thank Shelly Lewis. Uh, certainly want to thank Darby and Barry for uh, lending us their voices. And, of course, Greg Russ, our sound engineer, the man. In charge of all sounding. Uh, also want to thank Stacy for designing our logo. And thanks to all of you, our loyal listeners. Uh, if you have questions or comments, tweet at us. We're on Twitter, at WTFAW Show, at Kevin Janis, and at Benari Lee. Check out our Tumblr, WTFAWshow.tumblr. And you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can now find us on Stitcher. And we want to give a big shout-out to uh, Ricky. He's on Twitter, at Majestic. He really pointed us in the right direction on that. So thanks a lot, Ricky. Uh, thanks, Ricky. Please check us out on iTunes under the name WTFAW. Uh, and please subscribe, because you can get all of our podcasts downloaded automatically into your phone right away, right when we release them. And if you like what we do please give us a nice five-star review on iTunes because, you know, why the fuck not? Because why the fuck not? That, I think, sums up another episode of Where the Fuck Are We? I'm Kevin Janis. I'm Benari Poulton. Please join us next time when we try to figure out where the fuck are we? Where the fuck are we?